All right, join me in Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we bless you for gathering this group of people together on your day to worship together. As we turn to your word now by your prophet Habakkuk, I ask that our hearts may be encouraged to be knit together in love to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in his name we pray amen before we read the text I just I know some of you were gone last week and I wanted to give a brief um, summary and context of uh, where we're at so we, we began uh, Habakkuk last week and we did verses 1 through four, the historical setting of this book is that Habakkuk is a prophet to Judah, that is the northern kingdom, so you'll recall that the kingdom is split, and Judah is rather the southern kingdom, Israel's the northern kingdom, Israel at this point has been hauled off into exile by Assyria already, and um, so Habakkuk lives during the time of King Jehoiakim, who was exceedingly wicked king. And also, he lived during the time of the rise of the Chaldeans, as we'll see today, which the Chaldeans is what we know more commonly as the Babylonian Empire, the Neo-Babylonian Empire. So throughout this series, probably I'll use those terms, Chaldeans, Babylonians, Neo-Babylonians, uh, kind of interchangeably, but that, that's what we're talking about. And so this is the time and place that Habakkuk lived. Now, last week, we discussed how Habakkuk um, saw the great wickedness in the covenant people in the the uh, in in Judah, and he was concerned about this. And his question really is, how can the covenant keeping God allow wickedness to go on without being judged? So we learn from Habakkuk that the proper way to ask hard questions of God, and that is our questions, they need to stem from first of all a zeal for God's law, a desire to see God's law done, and and, and a grievance, a grievous in our hearts when it's trampled on, particularly by the people of God. Secondly, they need these questions need to stem um, from an effort to understand the world from God's perspective rather than, you know, are we trying to move God or are we trying to move ourselves into God's understanding? And then thirdly, um, these questions need to stem from a proper expectation that God does, in fact, fulfill his promises to us. So with that uh, brief context in mind, and if you haven't uh, gone and listened, the, that first sermon is is online, and um, it would be good uh, to, to fill in the context for you specifically for this sermon today, because this sermon is God's response to Habakkuk's questions. So um, let's stand and read that response together, Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 through 11 this morning. Word of the Lord. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press on 
proudly. Their horsemen come from afar, they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on, guilty men whose own might is their God. This is God's word. You may be seated. Paul says at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Life was simple as a kid. I personally had so much freedom, and it seemed like adults were always tied down with responsibility. And I always thought as a kid, you know, when I'm grown, I'll have my own money, my own house, no one telling me what to do. I'll have all this freedom, right? But as you get older and get more and more responsibility, um, things start to make more sense. Somewhere in the five or six years following high school graduation, you begin to understand just how complex life actually is. Some of you who are older are like, you don't even have any idea, young man. (laughs) But my point is, as we mature, our horizons broaden, and we begin to see that the world is bigger than we even thought and, and far more complicated than we had imagined. And as youngsters, our context encompasses really a very narrow radius. And it's it's hard for us to see beyond that radius. And so um, we don't yet have the skills or the knowledge or the understanding to look up and understand and see the world around us as it is. This is, in a sense, what's going on with Habakkuk. Last week, Habakkuk made some valid observations about his circumstances and Judah's circumstances, but he has, in a sense, um, he, he's not seeing the forest for the trees. All he can see, really, is his immediate context, and he doesn't have the skills or the knowledge or the maturity to see that bigger picture. So in this passage, what God does in his response to Habakkuk is he lifts up Habakkuk's eyes to see the bigger picture, to understand more of the context of what's going on in his reality. So in our passage today, God answers really all of Habakkuk's questions and objections from last week. And in hearing God's response this morning, I pray we grow in our understanding of God and his word um, and the the world around us that God governs. And so in this passage, I see, and this is something I rarely do, but these are three alliterated words. We see that God teaches us about his providence, his pace, and his promises. His providence, his pace, and his promises. So first, we'll look at his providence. So what is providence? Uh, the, the shorter catechism says that God's works of providence are all his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. 
So this is distinct from, from what we know or have heard maybe of the illustration of the watchmaker who has, has intricately built the watch, wound it up, and then kind of let it tick. But he doesn't really interact with the watch once he's made it, right? That, that's the, what we know as deism, that, that God has created this intricate world, wound it up, and, and let it go. But providence says that God interacts with his creatures and his creation regularly, and in fact, <laughs> constantly. So you remember from last week, Habakkuk expressed confusion about the way that God was preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. He doesn't understand how God is doing that. You know, he, he accused God of not being able to hear him, uh, that he wasn't saving him, that God was even being idle, and that God's law was, was paralyzed. And it's interesting here, and in fact, important, that God does not rebuke Habakkuk for his questions. He doesn't really even uh, question him back. He just responds, and, and because there is a degree of, of validity to Habakkuk's complaints. There is wickedness and there is injustice in Judah. That, that's true. And Habakkuk really does have every right to expect God to act and to act justly. But God, almost like a good father here, he he says, okay, I understand that you feel that way and why you feel that way. Now, just take a moment and look up from the sackcloth and ashes for just a second and, and see the bigger picture with me. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. These verbs are actually um, plural. He's saying, you all look. He's talking to all of Judah, not just Habakkuk here. So God expects the whole of Judah, wicked and righteous alike, to look and to see what God is doing. The unfolding scene that they'll take in is really, he says, supposed to astound them, wonder and be astounded, be shocked at what I'm about to do. God even says, it's unbelievable. For I'm doing a work in your days, he says, that you would not believe if told. For I am raising up the Chaldeans. Any number of things could make this work unbelievable. For one thing, the Assyrian Empire exercised complete dominance over that region for 300 years and here comes along this kind of outlier underdog, the Chaldeans, and just unseats them. That, that is unbelievable. Also, the swiftness of God's judgment. You know, these newcomers to the scene would be um, at Judah's doorstep. He says, within their lifetimes, I am doing a work in your days, the Lord says. Also, it might be unbelievable that the Gentiles would terrify and conquer God's people Judah in the promised land, even though years before Israel had terrified and conquered the nations that lived there, those seven nations. And even more shocking, God's hand would be with the Chaldeans, these Gentiles, rather than Judah. I think, though, God's statement that they would not believe if told is really and ultimately a testament to their hardness of heart, to the hardness of heart of Judah. Paul quotes this text in Acts chapter 13, and we'll actually circle back around to that toward the end of the message. But in that passage, he makes it plain that Judah's unbelief was due to their hardness of heart. So that, that's why they won't believe it if told, because they're hard-hearted. 
An example of their hardness of heart is found in Jeremiah chapter 36. And this king Jehoiakim, under whom um, Habakkuk is a prophet, Jeremiah was asked to, to basically record all of his prophecies, and he had his friend Baruch, um, he dictated all these prophecies to Baruch, and Baruch went, and ultimately these prophecies ended up before King Jehoiakim, who was, you remember, wicked, a wicked king. And he was, it was wintertime, he was in the palace, and as they read these prophecies to Jehoiakim, after they would read a few columns, he would cut those columns off with a knife, take them and put them in the fire pot. Totally, I mean, raising the finger to God, essentially. God had warned the people of coming judgment through his prophet Jeremiah for years, and they refused to listen or to believe. So the big takeaway, really, though, in all of this, is that shocking strength of God's providential arm. In 1-4, through four, Habakkuk expressed wonder and amazement at the wickedness of the nation of Judah. And now God says to Habakkuk and the whole nation of Judah, stand amazed and wonder at how I govern the nations. That's what you should stand and wonder at. Behold what I am doing. Autonomy is the darling idol of men's hearts. And we like to think we govern the outcome of our lives. Kings and kingdoms especially like to think that. But it is God who causes kings and kingdoms to rise and fall. And if you turn over to Isaiah 10, this is my favorite expression of this, that God causes kings and kingdoms to rise and fall. Isaiah 10, and we'll start in verse 5. God says, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against the godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire in the streets. This is interesting. He's talking about Assyria here. But he does not so intend, for his heart does not so think. He doesn't think that he's the rod in God's hands. But it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? And then just jump down to, to 12. When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of peoples and plunder their treasures. Like a bull, I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found, like a nest, the wealth of the peoples. And as one gathers the egg that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. And I listen to God's response to Assyria. This is great. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? Therefore the Lord God of hosts will send wasting sickness among his stout warriors, and under his glory a burning 
will be kindled like the burning of fire. So Assyria boasts of her power and success, but it turns out she's just an axe in the hand of God. And yet, at the same time, Assyria will pay for her proud heart and wicked deeds. And this is that mystery of the relationship between God's providence and man's responsibility. God wields the wicked nations and the wicked intentions of man's heart to accomplish his purposes, yet men are responsible for their actions and they'll pay for them. And rather than try to explain the mechanics of that relationship, it's best to simply affirm it, because here it is taught plainly in Isaiah 10, it's taught in the book of Habakkuk, and as Joseph said to his brothers, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. This doctrine of God's providence is of great comfort to us. Because without it, we couldn't affirm with Paul what he says, that all things work together for the good of those who love God. God's providence ensures that justice goes forth and that his beloved are well taken care of. The, the Confession, Westminster Confession, says of the providence of God, that as the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. So I, I'm of the belief that all of the, the cords of world history wrap around the, the, the cable of redemptive history. God says to Habakkuk and to Judah, look up and see the bigger picture. That picture is that God is providentially governing his world and the events to bring justice to Judah. That bigger picture is a, is a comfort to righteous souls like Habakkuk, who is afflicted by the, the travesties that are going on. And at the same time, it should frighten the wicked and cause them to turn and repent. Now the next piece or area of God's instruction for us in, in this passage is uh, regarding his pace, the speed at which he does things, his pace. I said last week that waiting on God is one of the hardest parts of the Christian life. Because though we have faith that he will indeed fulfill his promises, it's, it's painfully apparent that his ways are not our ways and, and that his sense of timing is not our sense of timing. That's how, why Habakkuk's chief question in verse 2 was, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And this is again where the bigger picture comes into play. And it's like, sure, it feels slow now, Habakkuk, but do you not understand that what God is doing is raising up a nation? In fact, an empire. It's amazing what God did. He, Chaldea exploded onto the scene, going from this relatively small regional power to ousting the dominant empire to establishing the Babylonian empire all over the course of like two decades. That's fast. In terms of the rise and fall of nations and kingdoms, that's a breakneck speed. What's interesting too about Babylon is that they were really just a flash in the pan because the Persians conquered them about as quickly as they rose. We could look at this in terms of political history and find answers as to why this happened, but in an ultimate sense, it happened because God was raising up a nation to judge Judah, and then 
to return Judah back to her land, to return a remnant back to her land. Habakkuk was confused about God's timing, but uh, surprise, surprise, God turns out to have perfectly timed and planned every bit of it. God's description of the Chaldeans here is, is not coincidental either. I think it's, he says in verse 6 that they are a bitter and hasty nation. He says in verse 8 that their horses are swifter than leopards. And again in verse 8, they fly like eagles swift to devour. And in verse 11, they sweep by like the wind and go on. God may have seemed slow to judge, but they're going to sweep in fast. Habakkuk and the other righteous in the land were confused about God's pace. He seemed slow to judge and the wicked likewise recognized God's apparent slowness. They they had grown apathetic, supposing God's day of judgment would never arrive and their prophets proclaimed that message of peace, peace. Both the righteous and the wicked here will be jolted by the speed at which the Babylonian forces will descend on them. We learn from Second um, Peter that, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. But that means to us that God is not slow, rather he is intentional. He is punctual, his timing is perfect. We must keep this in mind with kind of the big ticket items of life, like life and death, world affairs, um, the decline of the Western church, persecution of the Eastern church, the, the salvation of our loved ones. We should also keep it in mind in the day-to-day mundane details of our lives. Michael and I were talking about this the other day. Um, in those times in our lives that cause us the most irritation, so often those are the things which prove to, to yield the, the best results. We saw this when we were trying to move here. It's hard to find housing here. It's expensive, especially compared to where we were living. And I was between work and I didn't want to find more work because I knew I was moving. And so I was feeling the pressure. And so in my freshman, I was pushing hard on every opportunity I could find. And I didn't know what God was doing. It took a number of months and... One day, I happened to be up here visiting, trying to track down work or housing, and I went to men's breakfast, and Ross Mark was there, and he says, well, we have two trailers coming open. Turned out I've lived in both of them. <laughs> uh, but it turned out perfect. I'm right here. I ended up working right here. I, I couldn't have planned this better than God planned it. All my best schemes were not nearly as good as his. Amen. And of course, we should say God doesn't always make us comfortable or happy. His providence doesn't always mean things turn out nice. When Judah goes into exile, everybody goes into exile, the righteous and the wicked alike. Read Daniel. Many times God ordains suffering for our good as well. But what is absolutely true, both anecdotally and scripturally, is that God always, always comes through with a better plan for us than we could have made for ourselves. As our friend Wayne, who we prayed for um, regularly, he told Michael and I, if I could change my whole life story, which included abuse by his father, a life of sin, getting AIDS and dying, almost dying of AIDS at this point, 
He says, I wouldn't change any of it because that is the path that led me to Christ. It's an amazing testimony. Bigger picture lifts our eyes off the problems and pace of the world and fixes them on God's glory and God's pace. Now, the final term that we learn about from this passage is, or is God's promises. God's promises. Last week I tried to show how Habakkuk's questions arose not from a sense of doubt, but really a rightly placed faith and expectation that the covenant-keeping God would in fact keep his promises. I pointed out also that human promises can't always be relied upon, but God's promises are completely trustworthy. And so Habakkuk cried out for justice because God is the God of justice. Once again, God's response directs Habakkuk and Judah and us to that bigger picture. Not only does he plan kind of generally to hold true to his character, but this cup that he's brewing will be poured out directly from specific covenant vows that he made with Israel before they went into the promised land. Specific covenant vows. He's going to keep them. Um, Michael's study of covenant has been great for us, and we have seen that two key components in biblical covenants are blessings and cursings. Blessings for obedience, for covenant keeping, cursings for covenant breaking. When God made covenant with Adam, he said, if you eat of the tree, you shall surely die. Conversely, the blessing was life. And Deuteronomy 27 and 28 contain the, probably the largest list that I know of, of covenant blessings and covenant curses. And this is just as they're going into the promised land. And here's just a portion of what God has to say. And if you want to turn there, actually, Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 45, he speaks to those who would be covenant breakers. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 45, these are the covenant curses for the Sinai covenant. So all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed, because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. They shall become a sign and a wonder on you and on your descendants forever, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things. Therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord shall send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the ends of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand, a nation of fierce countenance who shall have no respect for the old, nor show favor to the young. So we see here that the Lord was raising up the Chaldean nation, not because that was one of many viable options to, to discipline his people, but he was raising up a nation because he was keeping his covenant word in, in detail. 
The nation from Deuteronomy 28 sounds a whole lot like the one in Habakkuk. Again, in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Habakkuk, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence and their faces forward. They gather captives like the sand. At kings they scoff and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. They sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. That language of they, they laugh at every fortress and they pile up earth and take it. Uh, this is, he's talking about siege warfare here. And the enemy would camp outside the city walls for months or even years to starve out the population. And at the same time, they would build an earthen ramp up to the top of the wall so that they could just walk in and go into the city. Um, Judah was a vassal state of the Babylonian Empire, and at some point, Jehoiakim lost his mind and decided to stop paying tribute to Babylon, and shock of shocks, here comes the Babylonian army. And they set up siege against Jerusalem. God promised this siege as well in the covenant curses in Deuteronomy 28. And really this is perhaps the most graphic and gruesome language in the Bible. And I'll leave you to read it on your own. Uh, But God promises essentially that they would be so hungry that the sweetest of mothers would be reduced to cannibalizing her own children. And if you read the book of Lamentations, which is Jeremiah's lament over the city after it had been raised by the Babylonians, we see this is exactly what happened to them. So the point is, not only did God walk in lockstep with his character, but he actually fulfilled his promises to the letter. We won't spend time to examine each of these descriptions of the Chaldeans, uh, individually, but we get the idea, right? They're unpleasant people. They are terrifying. <laughs> they are rash, they are brutish, they're ferocious, and they're violent. They take for themselves and, and believe they're only accountable to themselves. Their might is their own God. The more they can demonstrate their own dominance, the more they honor that God. That's exactly the judgment that God promised in Deuteronomy. So Habakkuk's eager expectations that God will fulfill his promises are being met beyond what what Habakkuk had imagined. And like the shock of a a young adult who begins to experience uh, life as it is for the first time, uh, Habakkuk begins to grapple with this, and he is, in fact, stunned. And as we'll get into that next week. Um, But as you might expect, Habakkuk's response in this coming passage goes something like, Okay, I think that the, the, the cure is worse than the disease now. Maybe we could just ease up a bit, God. But that's why we have to look at the bigger picture. We need to view the world as God views the world. Because if our perspective is self-defined, this type of very painful, uncomfortable revelation will never make its way to the surface. But if we have our minds and hearts soaked in God's word, we'll learn to rejoice both in God's covenant-keeping justice and his covenant-keeping mercy. 
It's that covenant-keeping mercy that I want to turn to lastly before we close. Um, and if you would flip over to Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul is, is on his missionary journey and he stands up in, in the city of one of the Antiochs in the, in the synagogue. And to the Jews, he, he recounts redemptive history from Exodus through to the promise of David through on to John the Baptist to them. And he says that this message of salvation had begin, been given to him because the Jewish rulers in Jerusalem didn't recognize their Messiah and they didn't understand the prophets. The prophets, he says, that they read every Sabbath. Because they didn't recognize the Messiah, they put him to death unjustly. And in so doing, he says, they fulfilled these prophets. And what Paul shows is that Jesus was indeed the Messiah and that God proved it by raising him from the dead. And this is what he says next. He says, referencing our text this morning, he says in beginning in verse 38 of Acts 13, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that is Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, and be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Now, I read Acts 13 a number of times this week, and I urge you to do the same, because the gravity of this is extraordinary. I was blown away as I began to understand it. I'm not sure I can communicate it fully to you, but it's really stunning. God is doing a work in our days which scoffers will not believe if told. In his providence, all of redemptive history and all of world history has led up to this man, Jesus, by whom forgiveness of sins is proclaimed. And, and what a relief Paul's next statement brings. He says, And by him, by Jesus, everyone who believes is freed from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So those covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28, those horrible covenant curses hang over the head of everyone who attempts to merit their own salvation by the law of Moses. But we are freed from those. Paul reminds us in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, 10 through 12, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. That's not coincidental. This is covenantal language. Under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Another Habakkuk quote from chapter 2, which we'll get into. He says, But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. Then he says, for those who believe, in verses 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. That's the substitutionary atonement Michael was talking about this morning. 
he took on that covenant curse. That's what he did. He bore the covenant curse on our behalf. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. All of God's covenant promises find their fulfillment in Christ. So by them, those who are believed are freed from those covenant curses of the law of Moses, and we all receive those beautiful covenant promises given to Abraham. But not by works of the law, but by faith. So when we find ourselves um, confused over God's providence, over his pace, over his promises, we need to remember that there is a much bigger picture, God's picture. We can always turn to God in prayer as Habakkuk did and call on him for understanding and turn to his word to see really as much of that picture as God wants us to see is contained within the revelation of scripture. When we see the big picture, it's overwhelming. God's justice, those covenant curses are overwhelming, but so too is his mercy. He's always working in such a way that if told, we would not believe. But if by his grace we do believe, we find him to be an overwhelmingly faithful Savior. Amen.